Hi, Hurricane fans. Joe Zagacki here for UPS. Your customers want more from your business. You've got to make more happen, whether they're in Miami or on the other side of the world, globally or locally. UPS is building solutions to help businesses give their customers exactly what they want. More made easy. UPS, official logistics company of Miami Athletics. We do it once again, this time with Leon Searcy. He's going to take us behind his journey to the University of Miami and, and beyond a little bit. He's a media personality, author, and uh, I was told also, uh, although if I follow you on social media, you, you're big into cigars, right, Leon? Uh, yeah, well, actually, I have my own cigar company, my own cigar, All Pro Series Cigar. Yeah, so I have I have that here. And so I, here's, what, here's how we're going to start it off, to give the All Pro Series line a little pop. You're ordering a box, a free box. You're going to send it to somebody, okay? A free box of your premier cigars. The box I want you to send it to is the guy at UM that pushed you the most to be the best that you were. Who are you sending it to? When you asked me that question, I, I thought you were going to say what would help me with promotions and sales, and I was going to say I would send it to The Rock, for sure. <laughs> you got a box of it. But you had, the question you asked me is who should I send it to that pushed me the most when I was in Miami was probably be Art Kehoe. Archeo would definitely get a box of cigars from me because I, I wouldn't be the lineman that I was if it wasn't for him. So he gets the free. Now, we'll let, well, then Art, get, Art will promote the cigars then. Oh, yeah, no problem. I'm not even sure if he smokes cigars, but I, I would definitely send him a box. He'll hand them out. There you go. All right, so how is this possible? How is it that you only played one year of high school football? Tell me about that. Well, I only played one year of high school football because uh, my mom was a, was a teacher. And, you know, during uh, middle school, uh, I skated by middle school. You know, I was a class clown. You know, I hollered at the ladies, and I barely got by. But I had, like, a 2.5 grade point average. But my mom knew I loved sports. You know, I played pickup basketball, played tackle football, I played street football. So she knew that my aspiration was to play sports in high school. So when I got to high school, my mom told me, um, listen, uh, you're not going to be able to skate by in high school the way you skated by in middle school. So in order for you to play sports, you, had to, you have to have a 3.0 grade point average. So there you go. Now, just imagine me now. I'm in high school now. I'm 6'4", 270-something pounds, one of the biggest guys in high school and not playing any sports. For one, that means the ladies are totally out of the question. You're not getting any, not getting any holler from the ladies. You're just a big okay. guy. You're just a big guy walking the hallway. I'm just a big, I'm just a big nerd. That's what I was. <laughs> Most of the times you would see me in the library and studying and all that kind of stuff because I was determined to get that grade point average up. So did you play youth football? Like, did you play youth sports? Nothing. Only I, my, my first time playing organized football was my senior year in high school. My Lord. So let me ask you something. Your mom issues the challenge, and you accept it. I accept the challenge. I go out for football. I go out for football. And this is all well documented in my book. And I remember it specifically the first day of football practice. Now, I had trained the prior to that because spring ball was the first time I went out. Actually, my junior year, going into my senior year, was my spring was the spring football. So I knew I was going to be training to get ready for spring. So I, you know, I had trained for the last four months to get myself ready for spring football. It was the first day of football practice. I remember after seventh period, the bell rang. I go out to school and to my right is the football field. I see the guys over there to my right going to the football field for practice. And right in front of me to go home was my bus. My bus to go home was right in front of me. I remember getting on my bus, intimidated, scared to play football, and then the bus driver leaving, and then I got up and I told him to stop the bus so I could get off the bus and go to football practice. Was the coach expecting you at practice, or you were just going to show up? I was just going to show up, yeah. The coach, coach wasn't expecting me. Well, Coach Gerke, Coach Gerke actually, months before spring ball, he saw me playing basketball in the gym. He had no idea who I was. And he asked me if I was new to the school, and I said, no, Coach, I'll be a senior next year. He said, wait a minute, you'll be a senior next year. You never played football? And I said, I've never played football. He said, well, you're coming out for football. And when he told me that day, uh, that's when I started training for football. I had no idea what I was doing. All I knew is that I needed to be able to run. I needed to be able to move. So I was self-determined to get myself ready for football. I had no trainer. I had nobody motivating me. I just got up. After I got to school, after school, I would literally, before I would skip the bus 
wouldn't catch the bus home so I could run home from school. And I was like two and a half, three miles from school. So I would run the sidewalk, then walk the sidewalk, run the sidewalk, walk the sidewalk, all the way till I got home, got home, did my chores, picked up my sister, went back on the pavement, and I used to run the neighborhood, get to go to my my middle school, and I used to just work on drills on my by myself, footwork, pulling, trapping, all that kind of stuff, to the point where I got to football practice. And I remember I, I started spring ball as the third string nose guard. By the end of spring ball, I was a starting right tackle. It came that quickly. I was pretty ferocious. Let me just say that. You were pretty nasty. So let me ask you this. How big of an accomplishment was it for you to get the grades up? I know you wanted to play football, but mom said, hey, Leon, it ain't happening unless the GPA gets to us to the point that I'm, I'm satisfied with. Well, mom, see, mom, I was always a stickler on doing a little bit more than what my mom asked me to do. So she wanted me to have a 3.0, so I had a 375. So uh, I had a 375 going into my senior year, and that's what I graduated with going into my senior year of high school. So you started off as a defensive tackle. I was a third-string nose guard the, the first couple of days in spring ball. And how'd you make the transition to offensive line? Well, I made a transition because they had a guy on the team that was going both ways, and uh, he got hurt. And so they just said, they just say, hey, sir, so go in there and get some rest or right tackle. And they didn't think nothing of it. And then they didn't know, little did they know, uh, I took the playbook, I studied, I knew what I was doing. And then uh, I was coming off the ball, I was, I was physical, I was pass setting, I was pulling, I was trapping. And uh, they said, damn, this Cersei guy is pretty damn good. We might need to leave him at right tackle. So I went through scrimmages and practices, and I just, I beat everybody out. And by the end of spring ball, after the jamboree, I was just starting right tackle. And were you the best offensive lineman on the team after one spring? To me, yes, I believe I was. I mean, we had guys that had played two and three years, but uh, I made an immediate uh, impact. You mentioned uh, the pulling, the trapping, the footwork, all that stuff. You, you were self-taught? Well, I, I was self-taught for spring ball. Now, the best thing that ever happened to me was uh, after spring ball, uh, when Jamboree was over, my head coach, uh, Bill Gerke, asked me what I was going to be doing during the summer. And I said, I have no idea, coach. He said, I want you to come to summer school. You know, back in those days, if you went to summer school, that means because you didn't have the grades. But he wanted me to come to summer school from 8 o'clock in the morning to 4 o'clock in the afternoon to work me. And you know, back in those days, you didn't tell your high school coach no. If he said he wanted you somewhere, you were there. So from eight o'clock to four o'clock every day, Monday through Thursday, because we were all Fridays, I was with my high school coach in the weight room, on the field, running stadiums, running, uh, playing pickup basketball, all those things got me prepared. Uh, he trained me. He basically trained me that whole summer, about two months. Until the season came around. When the season came around, I was in the best shape of my life. Were you a good basketball player, by the way? Well, he told me to play basketball. He said he didn't want me to do anything but rebound. He said, don't shoot. He said, I want you to move your feet and rebound. That's what my high school coach told me. He didn't want me taking any jumpers. He just wanted me to play defense, move my feet, and get rebounds. And that's what I did. You said you always wanted to play football. So now you're, you know, you've gone out for spring. You're within a spring season. You're starting right tackle. It's your, your senior year. When did you know you were good enough to play college? So you thought you were good, but when did you know you were good enough to play college? Was that the goal to go to college and play football? Well, the goal was to go to college and play football. So I, you know, I wasn't having, well, I had the grades to go to college. I didn't want to put my parents in the rut to have to send me through college. Uh, the first two letters I ever got after spring ball was actually Florida A&M and South Carolina State. Uh, so I go through the whole season, the whole football season, and there's some scouts showing up at practice every here and there asking about me. Uh, but I remember the last day of football practice, the last day when the season was over, our coach asked a bunch of guys, hey, have you made a decision on where you're going to school and stuff? He got to me. He said, Leon, do you know where you're going to school? I said, well, coach, you know, I've only had, I only got two letters. And so I don't have any idea who, you know, who really wants me or whatever. So what had happened was, my mom had called Coach Gerke to have all my letters sent to the high school and not the house so I wouldn't get the big head. So when Coach Gerke went behind his desk, he grabbed a box, and I, I saw letters from Miami, Florida State, Florida, Georgia, Auburn, LSU. I had, I had all the major colleges looking at me, and then I, I made the decision that, listen, you know, this college thing is for real. I said that um, I wasn't going to leave the state of Florida, you know, because I, I definitely wanted my parents to be able to travel to see me when I played. So I said it's going to come down to Florida, Florida State, or Miami. You went with Miami. I did some research, listened to some podcasts you were on. 
And you said one of the reasons that you were dr- drawn to Miami. Now they had, let's see, they had just lost in the Fiesta Bowl, right? In 86. Mm-hmm. But there was a championship mindset around that. You enrolled in 87, right? Yep. All right. That's championship number one. But you said when you were around Miami, it was championship mindset. There was a certain mentality. You said you went to other schools. You didn't feel it. You didn't hear the guys talk about it. So what was it that they said or did that made you connect to that mindset? Well, I, I knew that every all the guys that I talked to when I was at Miami was they were confident, but they were borderline arrogant. And that was refreshing because I didn't realize it. I realized this one, I, once I got there that those guys worked extremely hard. So they had a reason to be confident about their ability and what they were able to do. But on my visit, I mean, all those guys talked about was championships. They didn't talk about trying to beat this team or going to a bowl. They talked about, hey, listen, we're here to, at Miami to win national championships. And every other place I went to, it wasn't about that. You know, it wasn't about being a champion. It was about beating this team or that team or winning this, you know, this title. Miami was strictly about winning championships. And that, that was refreshing to me to, to see those guys I'll be so in tune to winning championships. And that's where I wanted to go. I mean, Florida State actually, it came down to Florida State and Miami. And I took Miami's visit first. I went to Florida State second because my mom made me go to Florida State because she promised Bobby Bowden that I would take a visit. But I went to Florida State. And and the whole time I was there at that dorm party, uh, they talked about how they couldn't beat Miami. And Miami was this and Miami was that. Miami was this and Miami. And I said, the hell with this. I said, I'm not going to spend the next four or five years of my career wondering why we can't beat Miami. So that was that was an easy decision for me that I chose Miami because I knew the guys on that team had the right mindset. They was like, listen, we're here to win championships. Uh, and that was a shoot. The, the first day at freshman orientation, uh, where all the freshmen from 1987 were at freshman orientation, and we're all laughing and joking in the meeting room or whatever, and then Jimmy Johnson comes in there, everybody sits down and gets quiet, and Jimmy Johnson says, he says to all the freshmen in my class, he says, welcome to the University of Miami. He said, if you're not here to win championships, he said, you take your ass home. And he walked out the door. That was right there was personified of what Miami was all about. You're here to win championships. And, you know, a, a kid that only played one year high school football, you would think I would be intimidated by that. But oddly, that was something that I, that I embraced. I wanted to be a champion. And, and Miami taught me how to be one. Who were some of the guys in your class? Uh, Randall Hill was in my class. Uh, Robert Bailey was in my class. Claude Jones was in my class. Uh, I'm trying to think of the guys that won three national championships. Anthony Hamley, Eric Merler was in my class. You know, well, we, we had some great guys that were in my I mean, Craig Erickson was in, in my class. That class in 87, I mean, it, I mean, it's only, one, it's only one class that I can remember in Miami history that has won three national championships, and that's the 87 class. So we had to do something right. What was Jimmy like as a recruiter? We always know he's good with words, good with manipulating the mind, the psychology game. How was he as a recruiter to, you know, although you said the players were the ones that convinced you. Jimmy, Jimmy, I, I didn't see Jimmy until my visit uh, when we was at the Fountain Blue. Uh, that was first time Jimmy Johnson when we was at the front. My recruiter was uh, uh, Don Solinger. So Don Solinger was my recruiter, and I remember this like it was yesterday uh, when it was about, when I was about to sign my letter of intent. You know, it's not as flashy as it is now with the ESPN and all this. So I, I remember I was in like a like a cubby hole, you know, uh, like, you know, like a closet space with my mom, my dad, my sister, Don Solinger, and myself. And my high school coach. And I remember Don Solinger went into his briefcase, pulled out the letter of intent. He had it in front of him. He sat, he sat it on the table and he pushed it towards me. And I'm pulling out my pen about to sign it. And then he pulls it back. He says, Leon, I want you to understand this. If you come to the University of Miami, he said, if you're not good, you won't play. And he said, if you're not great, don't come. And then he pushed the letter back in front of me. And I say, wow, that's a lot of damn pressure, coach. But that was the mentality. He said, if you're not good, you won't play. And he said, if you're not great, don't come here. And that was the mindset of Miami. If you're not coming here to be great, then we're wasting our, our time with you. That was another thing that stuck out to me when, when Don Solinger said that to me when I signed my letter of intent with the University of Miami. Before we get into to your sort of career at Miami, there's one thing I wanted to ask you about. You mentioned your mom was an educator. I had either listened or read that you had talked about your dad, and your dad growing up was a civil rights activist. Yeah, he was. That he integrated integrated areas of Georgia, I believe. How much did he tell you about that? How much did you ask? Because that is big stuff. Well, initially, my, my dad growing up, he was 18 years old. He was a member of the Black Panther Party for two years. 
And then he left the Black Panther Party and became, he was an engineer on the railroad. And when he was an engineer on the railroad, he saw a lot of discrimination that was going on at the railroad area. And then he, he got involved with civil rights. So at civil rights, he would do a lot of things. Uh, he, would do, he would be a part of sit-ins. He would be a part of uh, uh, segregating movie theaters. He would organize protesters and all that kind of stuff. So how my mom and dad actually met was that my mom was the first black school teacher in an all-white school in Manchester, Georgia. She was appointed by President Johnson to be the first black school teacher all white school in Manchester, Georgia. They met together and, you know, in the struggle, to be quite honest with you. And the reason why I was actually born in DC is because my mom was to report any discriminatory actions that were going on at the school. And she would write a letter and she wrote a letter. She gave it to one of the students to mail it off. The student took it to the principal. Principal called himself interrogating my mom. My mom was dating my dad. My dad got whiff of it. My dad basically stormed the school and told the principal that if he didn't let his woman out of the school, that uh, he was going to shoot up the place. And he got my mom out of the school, but then a couple of days, a couple of hours later, the Klan ended up burning a cross on my grandma's lawn because my dad lived with my mom at the time. And my dad, not being one to back down, he said, well, if they, you know, if the Klan got guns, I got guns. We could be some shoot, you know, we could shoot it up if we have to. My mom told him, don't do it. At that particular time, she was pregnant with me, and he left Georgia. And went to D.C.? Mm -hmm. Wow. I mean, that's history books. That's what, that's, what we that's what we learn about in school. And oddly enough, in the time we live in today, unfortunately, a lot has changed. Some hasn't. But your family lived through it. Yep, sure did. Did you take interest in hearing all those stories? Like, did, did they share a lot of that with you? I go back to Manchester, Georgia, because a lot of my family members, they, they still live in Georgia. Cousins and, uh, you know, great great aunties and all that kind of stuff live in Manchester. And it's funny when you go and you sit down with elderly people that have gone through that kind of stuff, you sit on their porch. And I like to do that because they embark so much wisdom and they tell so many stories. And you hear stories like this about my father, about other people in little small, small towns that don't make national news. But when you look at a little small town like that, that little people made the difference. Uh, people remember that kind of stuff. And then how'd you get back to Florida? Well, first, my mom. My mom was uh, teaching up at uh, Glen Burnie High School in Maryland when we lived in D.C. And she got an opportunity for a better job in Orlando. And I left, I left D.C. in Maryland when I was 10 years old. So that's the reason why I left D.C. And my mom took a better job in Orlando because my mom's sister, who worked for NASA, uh, my Auntie Sarah, she was already in Orlando. And she was telling her about the opportunities back in Florida. And uh, my mom took a job and we moved from DC, from Maryland to Orlando when I was like 10 years old. Wow, that, that is, uh, that's fascinating stuff, Leon. That's fascinating stuff. I think one of, the, one of the things about sports people always talk about is, I, mean, I hope this is true, you've lived it, that a lot of times the locker room's blind to race, that it's one of the places where that stuff doesn't infiltrate because you guys are a family. I tell people this all the time. If, if the world could be a locker room, I know I know damn well we would get along so much better. Because and I know I don't want to I don't want to sound cliche and say guys don't see color and all that kind of stuff. We do, but it's it's a brotherhood. You know, we got each other's back. You know, despite race, creed, color, religion. Uh, if you're a part of that family, we got your back. You know, and we're not. You know, we're going to defend our brother before we talk about our brother for sure. That's good stuff. So now let's let's just kind of end around back to you enrolling at the University of Miami. So you enroll in 87, the 86 loss, that's a tough loss at the time. Any Canes fan looks back at 86 Fiesta Bowl and it still tears him up. But when you first kind of attached yourself to the team, what was the mood either coming off the 86 Fiesta Bowl or getting ready for 87? Who the team was, they were pissed. You know, I mean, there was so much talent on that 86 team. I tell people that to this day, as great as the 2001 team was, the best team they ever played at Miami was probably the 86 team that lost to Fiesta Bowl. But the 87 team, they were pissed. I mean, you could tell in practice. I mean, we got after it. And I was on the scout team. I mean, so you got after it. And the coaches got after you, too. I mean, there were there was times where, where I was on the scout team, and, you know, and the coaching staff would call us into the meeting. And Jimmy Johnson would basically tell us, our scout team that, listen, we're not going to have practices like that anymore. He said, understand that we're at, you're at the University of Miami and there's a certain level of expectations that you've got to live up to and that we're recruiting guys to replace you. 
it, it was just, I listen, I never felt safe with my scholarship at Miami until my senior year. I never did. And Jimmy Johnson made it that way. We had no idea our scholarship was a four-year scholarship. But the way Jimmy talked about it, Jimmy talked about it, he was still our, he would take our scholarship every week. I mean, every day in practice. And that's how we practice. I tell people this all the time. When I was at Miami, I was more afraid of losing than I enjoyed winning. That's what it was about. You know, I was more afraid of losing in games than to actually winning. I, I, I didn't enjoy winning. I did initially, but I'm saying I was more afraid to lose because the coaching staff had already instilled in us that losing was not acceptable at Miami and that you don't want the repercussions of losing here at Miami. 87, freshman, scout team. Who are you going against? I'm going up against the number one defense in the country is when I'm going up against. Huh? I'm going up against freaking Darren Jones. I'm going up against Jimmy Jones. I'm going up against a young Greg Mark. I'm going up against Daniel Stubbs. The linebackers are, you know, I got Randy Shannon on one side. I got George Maurer. I got Bernard Clark. I got uh, freaking uh, Rod Carter. I mean, I'm going against the number one defense in the country every freaking day. And Butch Davis ran the scout team. And he got in our butt if we, he got on our scout team, even though that was the best defense in the country, he wanted us to go after. And, you know, he didn't want us to show any weakness. It's funny, we had, I had, I had Butch Davis on, um, on my radio show about uh, three weeks ago. And I said, Coach, I want to thank you for making my life, my, my 87 life scout team the most miserable thing I could ever imagine. Because Butch Davis would tell guys like, like Jimmy Jones. Jimmy Jones was his nickname was Swampy, right? So Jimmy, so if I got you know if I played pretty good against Jimmy Jones, I mean Butch Davis would say, "Well, damn, Swampy, Cersei's in your ass today." I mean he would just say little tidbits like that would just get the defense cronking. But listen, I tell this people, I tell people this all the time. I wouldn't have been the lineman that I was at Miami if it wasn't for the defense that I went up against every day in practice. So when you go up against these guys. And they're taking it to you, or maybe you're taking it to them. But at the beginning, at least, you're going up against the number one defense. We ever like, dang. I was never intimidated because I, I remember the first time I, I walked in, walked into the University of Miami, and I, I walked in the locker room doing freshman orientation, and it was like I walked through a biker gang. I mean, guys were all ripped up and cut and lifting weights and stuff like that. And I told myself when I walked out of that weight room that the only way I was going to survive at Miami is that I had to work. I had to work every day. And I had to go full speed every day. And if you talk to a lot of my teammates, the first thing they say about Cersei is that Cersei played hard all the time in practice, doing walkthroughs, all that kind of stuff. I went full speed. Only way I was going to survive at Miami, only playing one year high school football, is that I had to be tough and resilient, and I had to go full speed every day in practice. And that, that's that's what I did. Oh, because I was going to ask you guys like you know Brian Blades, you know Tober Bain, Daryl Funkton. You talked about Randy Shannon, Brett Perryman, Benny Blades, Michael, Bill Hawkins. I mean, that's those are the seniors that you came into. And I was going to ask, well, how do you fit in? But I guess you figured it out. Yeah, I did. I figured it out. I, you know, I just I was authentic. I didn't run my mouth. I was quiet and I worked hard. I wasn't trying to be anything that I wasn't. And I think the guys appreciated that. Because, you know, most guys that came in, came in at Miami, and I'm not going to say the names, they came in running them out, talking about how good they were, this, this, and that, whatever. And some shined and some didn't. Me, I was like, I was humble, but I was hungry. You know, I was nice, but I was nasty. And um, I think the guys appreciated my toughness and how hard I practiced every day. And then, you know, the older guys pick up on that, you know. So you gain that kind of respect knowing that uh, you get it done on, on the practice field. So when you first got there as a freshman, who who were the who was running your room, the offensive line room? Who who were the who were the leaders in that room then? Uh, the leaders in the room when I was there was um, let me see, uh, Rod Holder, uh, Bobby Garcia, Mike Sullivan, Darren Handy. Those were the leaders on, on, on in, in the offensive line when I was there. John O'Neill, those type of guys. How much did they help you? They helped me a lot as far as the playbook went. Uh, they spent most of their time telling me to slow down, but I wouldn't. Slow down meaning like take it easy or slow down like just get yourself under control? You know, we were running gasses, and I, I would run gasses full speed. And I'm a freshman. You know, you I don't know that you're not supposed to outrun for, uh, veterans and gas. I got you now. Don't make them look bad is what they were. That was the message. I wasn't trying to make them look bad. I was just trying to work on my, on my stuff. So if I may, you know, and they would tell me a couple of times in practice, hey, Cersei, slow down, don't make us look bad, all that kind of stuff. So, you know, I got a, I got a whiff of what they was talking about. Initially, though, I did everything full speed. 
I think you said somewhere, and I, I mean, I guess you probably meant this with a smile, but you hated Greg Mark only because of the battles you went, went up against with him. What were those practice battles like? Yeah, I mean, me and Greg Mark, I mean, we just friends started being friends now, maybe. Well, <laughs> <laughs> you know, we just probably just started becoming friends. You got a couple more years of friendship before he gets those cigars, though, I bet. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, no, no, listen. Uh, me and Greg Mark, we, we had some classic battles because the one thing about Greg is that he was so good, he ain't like to get blocked. And then I was good in my own right, and I ain't like to get beat. So, I mean, it was a slugfest. Anytime we did one-on-one -on -one drills, it was a slugfest. He got me sometimes, I got him sometimes, and sometimes we got in scuffles. We got in fights. We were in vinegar, so to say. But it was all good because all we were doing is getting each other better because I knew that whoever I saw on Saturday was not going to be as good as him. So if I could block him during the week, I was good and vice versa. Obviously, you probably didn't go head up against these guys, but either from tape or practice or just watching Cortez, Russell, how good were those guys? I mean, I know they were obviously we know what they did, but I'm saying from your vantage point in the offensive line room, watching those guys now removed from that, just going back and man, those cats were good. I can tell you this, in 1989, Russell was at the three and Cortez was at the one. There were times in practice where we could not run a play on offense because of those two. I remember Coach Erickson actually telling the defensive line coach to get them out of practice so we can run some plays. That's how dominant they were. Russell and Tez were so dominant that we would have to literally take them out of practice so we could run plays on offense. That's unreal. Who else from that group would be someone that we know Tez, right? You know, you know, Russell. You know, those guys, you mentioned Greg Mark. Who are some of the other guys that maybe don't get as much notoriety but still gave you guys fits? I don't think Bill Hawkins gets enough of uh, notoriety. Bill Hawkins was was legit. Uh, Maurice Crum, Rick Newbill, uh, Bernard Clark, Jimmy Jones. Jimmy Jones was a hell of a defensive tackle. I mean, he'll be if he played anywhere else, he just unfortunately was playing behind Cortez and Russ. If he played anywhere else, he'd be a first-team All-American. That's how good he was. I mean, we just had so much talent on that team. That, that's why, you know, practice was harder than the games. I mean, practice was hard. The games were easy. Practice was harder than the games. Going up against that kind of that level of competition day in and day out prepared you for whatever was on store on Saturday. And Saturday, you were going to games like, wow, is this it? Is this all you got? Because I know, because the intensity in practice was so high that when you got to games on Saturday, I mean, it just felt so good as a player. I would imagine the only team that came close, maybe two, would be Florida State and Notre Dame. How were you introduced to the Florida State rivalry in terms of when it came to game week? Your first time in 87, even if you're on scout team, you knew it was a different week. Yeah, it was a different week. Just the, the, the intensity revved up. I know I know, people are not, wanna, not going to want to hear this, but I'm going to say it anyway. Jimmy Johnson used to say there's no class week. Yeah, it, was, it wasn't. He said no class week. And however you want to take that, you take that. He just it's pretty he clear. Just, <laughs> he, just, he wanted your butt either in the weight room, in the film room, on the practice field for Florida State. Okay, that's that that's how intense it was. Florida State, Miami was freaking Frazier Ali every season. It was Frazier and Ali, and we knew that. And we knew that Florida State was a mirror image of ourselves. We knew that Florida State may not had the championships, but they had the just as, as much talent on those teams that replicate us, and we knew that if we ever came in there slipping, that they would get the best of us. Florida State, even more so than Notre Dame, Florida State week was always the most intense week of the, of the year. But what, about, what about after the 88 season with Notre Dame? Were you in, were you in South Bend for 88? I was. I, I, didn't play in the, I didn't play in the 88 game. I was, I was a backup in 88. So, I, you know, I got my chance at Notre Dame in 89, my first year start. Do I have this right? You lost four times at Miami? Uh, let me see. I was 56 and four, yeah. So which one burns you the most? The one that burns me the most is 88. 88 burns me the most uh, when we lost by one point to Notre Dame. Hey, listen, we kicked the extra point. For this, uh, we kicked the extra point in tie. At worst, Notre Dame and I play again, or we don't play again, and we split the national tie. You had four rings then? Yeah, four. Yeah. Three straight. Yeah. But you know what? To be quite honest with you, and I tell people this, if I split the national title with Notre Dame in 88, I probably wouldn't wear the ring, just being honest. Which one do you wear? Do you have them? I do have them. I wear the 91 the most. 
because that that was the one my senior year I went out as a champion my senior year. 89 is the coaching change but can you just tell everyone Jimmy's last words to you he, there's there's a, there's a meeting in the uh, study hall and he had he had some motiv- he had some motivating words for you that were pretty direct oh you're talking about where yeah yeah he, okay for, for, first of all uh, let me talk about the team meeting first yeah the team meeting is where everybody was laughing and joking and everything like that we were getting, I guess we were getting ourselves ready. I mean, he called the team meeting. Uh, I thought he was just calling the team meeting to set up uh, the schedule for, you know, camp moving forward and stuff like that. But he came in there in his suit. He had his head down. He had his shoulders all shrugged in. Because, you know, Jimmy, when he walks into a meeting, he takes command of the room. So he walked down. He had his head down looking at the podium. And we knew something was wrong immediately after that. And he gave a little speech to say he was leaving. You had no idea. I had no idea. I said he was going to the Cowboys. What was your first reaction when you heard it? I said, this is some BS. That's why I was this. Uh, you know, because, uh, he, you know, he sat there and told my parents it's going to be there my whole year. Right, but I understood the business of going to the next level. And he had nothing else to prove at college. So he wanted to leapfrog and go to the next level. So that was cool. And first time I ever seen a man cry in my whole entire life. I never seen him cry. Never. So, okay. So about maybe a week and a half later, I go and go up to get my schedule for like spring. I'm going up to the academic office to schedule to get my spring uh, get my spring schedule. And Jimmy Johnson was walking down the hallway and Jimmy was the type of guy that if he didn't speak to you, then you didn't speak to him, all right? Because when he spoke to you, it meant that he, he was commanding your respect, that he acknowledges you to speak to him. So I'm walking in, down the hallway to get my schedule and Jimmy Johnson comes to me and says, hey, Leon, come in this room. So we go into one of the rooms where everybody's at study hall. So he tells everybody to leave for a minute. Hey, everybody get out for me, get out for me. So Jimmy Johnson closes the door and I say, I, I can't be in trouble because you don't work here no more. <laughs> said, By the way, what are you I, still doing there? I, exactly. I said, what are, you, what are you doing here? I said, I, first of all, I said, I'm, I'm going through my mind of all the stuff that I said, did I do anything wrong with that? So I said, okay, I can't be in trouble. So he don't even work here no more. So he says, Leon, you know I'm going to, you know I'm going to the Cowboys, right? This year. I said, Yes, sir. Yes, coach. You know this is going to be a big year for you. This is going to be your first year start. And I said, Yep, I'm looking forward to it, coach. He said, Let me tell you something, Leon. He said, if you don't leave the University of Miami as one of the best linemen in the history of the school, he says you've let down your family, your friends, this university, your teammates, and yourself. And he walks out the door and he leaves. I said, Now I haven't even started. I have not started one game at the University of Miami. It embarked upon me that Jimmy Johnson saw something to me that maybe nobody else saw, even though I had never played a game before. So now, you know, I, I it, it's not like I didn't want to disappoint him. It's just that I felt like this man saw something to me that nobody else saw in me to make that kind of comment statement. Because he could have said that to anybody. But he said it to me. And, and that meant a lot to me. You know, I, it was almost to a point where I didn't want to let him down. I didn't want to let him down. So that motivated me even more. You know, the first thing I needed to do was, you know, the new coaching staff coming in, I had to make a profound effect upon the coaching staff there that I deserved to be a starter. And I said, let me get my foot in the door as a starter, and then I could work my way to becoming one of the best ever at the University of Miami. And, you know, I like to say, I'm, I, I, you know, you got Jim Otto, you got – you got McKinney, you got Romberg, you got a lot of great guys that play there. But I think that somewhere I'm in that pool of maybe some of the best offensive linemen to ever come to the school. So those words must have sat with you, right? Those are pretty heavy, motivating words if you take them the right way, right? They can empower you. Yeah, well, it can do one of two things. It can motivate you or it can cripple you, you know? And I, I, cho- I use it as motivation. Hi, Hurricane fans. Joe Zagacki here for UPS. Your customers want more from your business. You've got to make more happen, whether they're in Miami or on the other side of the world, globally or locally. UPS is building solutions to help businesses give their customers exactly what they want. More made easy. UPS, official logistics company of Miami Athletics. So in 89, are you expecting to start, like going into camp, or is it a battle? No, uh, in 89, that, that I, in my mind, it was my job to lose. I said that I needed to make uh, a splash with the new coaching staff. And whatever I needed to do, whether it be in the weight room, on the field, in the pads, I was going to make that splash. I was going to study that playbook. 
uh, and I was going to get myself ready to start for my first time at University of Miami. What did you know, if anything, about who your new coach was? I knew nothing about Dick Erickson. I had no idea what, what even school he came from. I initially, I thought Wyoming, Montana. When they say Washington State, I said, okay, I didn't even know they had a football team. I had no idea they had a football team in Washington State. And then what did you think about, what did you think when you saw the offense? Because that was different too. Yeah, the offense was a, it was a one-back offense. You know, in Miami, we would have a more pro-style offense. You know, fullback, running back, tied in. He ran a one-back offense. But I, I, I understand it now because all the amazing talent that we have on the receiving court, you want to get as much as that speed on the field as possible. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of three wide receiver sets. And when you got guys like Dale Dawkins and Randall Hill and Lamar Thomas and Horace Copeland and Wesley Curl, I mean, you want to keep that kind of speed on the field. I was a little taken aback by the offense in the running game because we actually dropped steps and then went forward. And, and, and the offense that we were with my uh, with Jimmy was more of an attack-style offense. And I struggled with it initially because we would actually drop, drop step, cross over, and come off the ball. And I was saying to myself, this is not going to work. This is absolutely not going to work. But, you know, you practice it long enough, you get ready for the season, and for the most part, it worked. How would you compare Jimmy and Dennis? Well, listen, we, we, were, we were exhorting a, a bit of freedom that we didn't have with Jimmy. You know, Erickson was a little, you know, a little, little bit more laxed, you know, in, in some of the stuff that we did, the conditioning, the running, and all that kind of stuff. You know, because, listen, when we was with Jimmy, when we had to run, like when we had days that we had to condition, guys would t be terrified. Guys wouldn't sleep. They wouldn't eat. They wouldn't go out. And when Erickson came there and we said, we would look at the schedule where we got to run. It was like, that's all we got to run today? Oh, shh. Man, I'm going to go. I'm just telling you, that, that was the big difference. But then when Erickson realized that we could handle the load that, that we handled with Jimmy, then, then he got back on board, you know, with some of the stuff that we did conditioning-wise and all that kind of stuff. Because initially, he didn't think that we could handle the load that they were asking us to do. How were those, those famous Jimmy 110s? I still hate him to this day. I, I hate him to this day. I, and we had Jimmy Johnson on. We had Coach Johnson on uh, the weekend, the week of the Super Bowl. And I had to tell Jimmy about the 110s. I had to tell him about it. He came on the show. We talked to him about it. You know what? The running of the 110s wasn't that bad. It was just the mental anguish that Coach Johnson used to put you through when you ran. Such as? You couldn't bend over. He, you know, if you bent over, you know, he would call you out and give your whole group another 110. If you didn't cross the line, he would, he would have guys on the sideline call you out and say you didn't make them. He would walk by you and say you're tired. If you're tired now, you're going to be tired in the fourth quarter. Let the heat be your ally. I mean, it was, just, it was just a lot of stuff that he would say mentally to just see if you had the endurance. to Because every time we ran the 110s, it had to be at least 90, 90 degrees or higher. Every time. Never failed. You mentioned you, the comparison of the coaches. So you said it was lax, but but obviously you guys did, still did a lot of winning. How did you guys navigate, right, a little loosening of the, of the ship with still keeping your focus on we're Miami, championships, you know, et cetera? Yeah, because we were, although it, it, it may have been a little lax, um, we had enough leadership on our team to hold everybody accountable. You know, if you weren't doing the right things, we had guys on, on, on leadership roles that would call you out, hold you accountable in practice. You know, if you're not making plays, if you're dropping balls, if you're fumbling, if you're missing tackles, if you're missing blocks, veterans will call you out. They will call you out on the field, call you out in the locker room. Make sure you you stay to the level of expectations that we wanted to be as Hurricanes. So I may say it was a little lax, but our, our focus and our goals was still to win a championship. Uh, so uh, we'd never, we, we never hindered trying to be champions. Uh, that, that was a full-time job. So who are the guys you wouldn't want to cross? Like, who was the guy that would, you know, if you weren't doing your job, he'd call you out, offense or defense? Defensively, who would call you out would be uh, Bernard Clark would call you out. Greg Mark would call you out. Hurley Brown call you out. Offensively, Dale Dawkins would call you out uh, if you were dropping passes. Nobody really on the offensive line really talked that much. So we didn't really call each other out, you know. But uh, those were usually the, the guys that, you know, kind of called you out to get you motivated to make sure you stayed on point. So 89, you win the title. You got to tell the stories. So what happened in BYU? There's like a trifecta of, of crap that goes down. What, what happens? Well, BYU was, um, 
was a cluster. Let me just say that much. Okay. Let me rewind for one second real quick. In 89, after you lose to FSU, do you still think you got a shot at the title? We do. We, 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 still, we, we still think we have a shot at the title because we know the last game of the season, we got Notre Dame. And we're hoping, we're hoping Notre Dame stays at number one. If they stay at number one, they give us an opportunity to beat them in the Orange Bowl to give us an opportunity to play for another championship. So uh, not only will we win in our games after we lost to Florida State, we're rooting that Notre Dame keeps winning their games. And then we want the clash of the Titans, the last game of the season, in the Orange Bowl. And there's nowhere in the world we're going to lose that game. So we, we, you know, we beat Notre Dame 27 to 10. And we go to play Alabama and we beat them in the Sugar Bowl. We went out, you know, I won my second national championship. Now, 1990 was probably, I ain't going to say we were overhyped. I think that we were overconfident, sort of say, because a lot of the guys were coming back for 90. Quarterback, offensive line, wide receivers, running back, defense, all the guys. We, we were still, had a huge, a, lot, a huge amount of talent. And then we go into the season, preseason number one. There's no way in our minds do we think BYU should be on the same field as us. So we go in the Provo, uh, a few guys on the team get food, get food poisoned. They get sick, you know, throw up, you know, diarrhea, all that kind of stuff. We didn't think nothing of it. Then we get on the bus, the bus freaking breaks down about maybe a half a mile or a mile, well, maybe a mile away from the stadium. Guys have got to get off the bus, carry their equipment to the stadium. We get to the stadium, we go in there, they've got the sprinklers on, and we got we got to play a game like an hour and a half, two hours, whatever. The sprinkler, they're wetting the field. The grass is not cut, and I, just, I mean, that's all because they're trying to minimize our speed on the field. And people say, "Oh, well, Leon, you you know, you're just bitter about." No, this is what they did. They slowed the track down, so you know they they could stand, be able to stand toe to toe with us. But I, I can't take anything away from BYU because Ty Detmer won the Heisman off us that year. He won the Heisman. As good as our defense was, they couldn't stop him from scoring, scoring touchdowns. Two losses in one year. That For you, that must have been like, you know, otherworldly, like UFO sightings or something. It was devastating. I mean, I can tell you how devastating it was in the community. I can just give you a sheer example about this, which is actually, actually in my book. So I used to go to this barber right across the street from the U University of Miami, you know. And um, when I used to go into the barber's chair, I go in there. It's like valet parking. Cersei comes in the door. Hey, sir, so I got the chair right here. Wipe the seat off. Come and sit down and get you a haircut. Okay, we lose to BYU. All right? I go on the next week to go get a haircut. Same barber, same place, same shop. I go on there. I walk in the door. Dude says, what's up? He said, uh, there's a line, sir, <laughs> for you to get a haircut. And I was like, what? I said, bro, can't be losing to BYU. Think you're going to walk in the haircut. And listen, we didn't gain our respect back in the community after losing to BYU until we played Florida State a couple of weeks later and we beat Florida State. That's how intense it was. Then what happened after Notre Dame? Well, we kind of went back to a... Way to line. <laughs> Is that why you guys celebrated so much against Texas? You must have had a bunch of frustration ready to unleash on them. Listen, I, I remember in 88 when we, when we were 11-1 and one and we beat Nebraska in the Orange Bowl 23-3. I mean, we won the game and we celebrated, but because it wasn't a national title, it was like, eh. Okay, we lose two games. Oh, my God. I mean, that was unheard of at Miami that you lose two games in one season. I mean, so, I mean, we took out our frustrations on, um, you know, Texas in the, in the Cotton Bowl because, for one, we probably had the best team in the country that, that had lost two games, and we knew it. We knew it. We knew that if we had have lost early to BYU and then maybe beat Notre Dame and, and uh, South Bend, we probably would have had a better shot of playing for a national title, but it didn't happen. So here, here's my question in regards to Texas. Who, who's the best celebrator on the team? Randall Hill. And, and see, a lot of people don't know this story either about Randall Hill and, and that touchdown that he scored in the Cotton Bowl. Is that I think I don't know what the score was. I think we were up like 33-3 to 3 or whatever. And I remember and I had Randall on our radio show to talk about it because I had to call him out because what happened was he came into the huddle and he basically said, because I think it was a run play initially. And uh, Randall comes in the huddle and he said, I don't care what Coach Erickson called right now. He said, I'm going to run a route. I'm going to run a go route, and you're going to throw me the ball, and it's not a damn thing Coach can do about it. He was like, Randall, what about 30? What are you worried about? He said, I haven't had a catch yet. And there's a lot of profanity going on while he's talking, so I don't want to say that. 
but he's telling the coach, he's telling Dennis Eric, I mean, uh, Craig Erickson to literally audible the play that was called and he's going to throw, and he throws him, the, he throws him that famous touchdown in the, in the Cotton Bowl where he runs and does a six shooter. But that was Randall, you know, Randall loved the spotlight and he didn't get any balls. So he wanted to score a touchdown. And I'm not surprised he did what he did, but he's the best celebrator on the team. And then can we talk about, is it 89? Can we talk about, was it third and 44 or fourth and 44? Can we talk about that one too? What was, what was that in the huddle? I don't remember. I don't remember that. I, I remember the play because obviously I was in it because we had a bunch of uh, silly penalties that pushed us way back there. And, and we're, we're thinking to ourselves, okay, you know, maybe we'll, you know, get a couple of yards punt and then the defense will stop him. And then when Randall scored, we ate up like maybe what? I mean, we ate up like maybe 10 minutes of the third quarter in that game. I mean, Notre Dame didn't get the ball back to about less than like two minutes left in the third quarter. And then our defense shut them out. And, and that, was, that, was, that was obviously the end of the game once, once we converted that third and 44. All right, so 91, you lose, if you lose two and 90, you come back in 91. If you said 87, the 87 team was, what was the 91 team? Well, the, the 91 team, we were disappointed uh, because we knew we had a lot of amazing talent on that team in 1990. We didn't let our seniors go out the, the right way. And I was determined to go out the right, right way. I figured that I came in Miami as a champion in 87. And I damn sure wanted to leave Miami as a champion in 91. So I was focused on being a champion because I, I think you get your respect at Miami by not bandwagoning on the guys who won championships, but your class winning a championship. So I, I wanted to be one of those elite classes that came in as a champion and left as a champ. Four losses. You didn't handle those two good, right? No, no, we didn't. Well, it didn't happen very often. It didn't. You know, you go 56 and four in five years, that's pretty damn good. That's better than pretty damn good. <laughs> you know, that's pretty damn good. Uh, you play 60 games and lose four of them and go five and no in bowl games and win three national titles, that's pretty good. I'll take that all day. From a kid out of Orlando who only played one year of high school football, I'll take that all day. All right, before we get to the book, I had Gino on. I didn't get to ask him this, so I'll ask, I'll ask you about it. A lot of great running backs come through the University of Miami, right? You guys had a group of running backs in your time, maybe not of that name ilk, but all very productive. How would you describe guys like McGuire, Leonard Conley, Larry Jones, Donnell Bennett? Like, you had good, solid backs. Yeah, we did. I mean, Steve McGuire, in my opinion, was the best among those guys. We called him Greedy Steve because in the training room he was greedy, but also we called him Greedy because he ate up yards. So that was his nickname. We called him Greedy. I mean, physical back. You know, one cut down here, not a lot of shake and bake, physical guy, you know, loves to hit you, loves to look for the big hit. You know, we had Alex Johnson. You know, Alex was more of the shifty kind of guy, you know. Uh, he didn't get that many touches, but he was the kind of guy, if you gave him out something in the backfield, you know, he could go and get you 10, 15 yards. Leonard Conley, you know, Leonard was a little, he was a tough son of a guy. Always, you know, shifty, you know, uh, was always, seemed to be off balance, but always on balance could make the big plays, was tough as, as tough as nails. Larry Johnson, bruising back, physical back, you know, loves to lay the wood. I mean, hell, he was the Orange Bowl uh, MVP in, in the championship game, you know, because Steve got hurt. Donnell Bennett was the same. They were all built. Uh, Steve McGuire, Donnell Bennett, and Larry Jones were all in the same kind of pedigree. Big, fast, physical backs that love to hit people. You know, Leonard Conley. And Alex Johnson were more of the shifty backs, you know, the backs that you, you know, you get out in open space and they go out there and make plays. So, I mean, they may not be on the level of like a, you know, a Clinton Portis or Willis McGahee or Edron James or, or, or Highsmith, but for the time we had them, I mean, those guys made some big plays for us. All right. So you've mentioned the book a few times. It's called Fourth Down and Damn. What made you write it and what was the, was there a moment where you said, I have to write it? What was the motivation behind it? Uh, it's my autobiography. I, I just know throughout my time, you know, I lived an amazing life growing up. I lived, I had an amazing time at the University of Miami. I had an amazing career in the professional ranks. But it just, it just doesn't talk about my accolades. It talks about my highs, my lows, my peaks, my valleys. It talks about some of, uh, you know, the entrapments of uh, professional sports. You know, I, I'm, 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 I'm endearing and truthful about some of my pitfalls. And I, I wrote the book because um, 
You know, I want to educate a lot of professional athletes that go into the next level that it's going to be a series of choices that you have to make. It's going to lead to your rights and your wrongs. I'm very profound about, you know, some of my rights and some of my wrongs. And I just, I hope the book, the book was very therapeutic for me. It was very therapeutic to go back and see some of the mistakes that I made back in the time when I played in the NFL, how I struggled with life after football and all that kind of stuff. So the book is a, is a telltale story of just my whole life. I hope that whoever reads the book comes away with, you know, the book's going to inspire you. It's going to motivate you. Uh, it's going to be endearing. It's going to be funny. It's going to be loving. And then it's going to be like, damn, Cersei. So you're going to, the reason why I called it damn, because there's a lot of, there's a lot of, a lot of stuff in the book you're going to say damn. You know, a lot of a lot of stuff in the book is going to be some stuff that you may not expect a lineman to do, but I did. And uh, I'm very I'm very thorough and, and upfront about some of my pitfalls that I, that I made while I was playing. You said mistakes. It was therapeutic. What was a mistake that you could share that just you would want someone else to hear so they don't make it? Well, you know, the draft was just last week. Last Thursday was the draft. And I, I tell a lot of, of, of athletes that uh, that I mentor, maybe at the high school or the college level, is that keep your circle small. I mean, when you, a lot of those guys that got, got drafted in the first round, I mean, they're, they're going to make a boatload of money. And then all of a sudden, there are going to be so many people around them who, who want to be their friends, want to invest in this, want to do this and that. And uh, I would just say that you got to understand that you're on your own corporation. You got to hire and fire people accordingly and keep your sm circle small and learn how to say no. And you've got to put money away like the next game is going to be your last game. There's no reason why the amount of money that these players make, and this is generational money. I mean, this is kind of money if you invest it properly and save it. Uh, this is the type of money that you can pass on to your family members, your kids and their kids and their kids moving forward. All right, Leon, I appreciate the time. I might have to get a copy of the book. Might have to put in an order for some cigars. You got it. Just let me know. Hopefully we'll see you down the, down at the Miami this year celebrating, what are we, 30 years from 91? 30 years. Believe that? 30 years. Wow. I can't believe that. I can't believe it either. You look good, bro. I told you that. I can only see your face, but you look good. <laughs> well, you know, I've, 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 I've been on the grind now. I've been um, working out and boxing and lifting and all that kind of stuff. So I'm down about 45 pounds. Well, enjoy the radio. You got a gift to talk. Thanks for sharing the stories. Thanks for taking us behind the U, and hopefully we'll see you down here in Miami soon. All right, you got it. Appreciate you.